The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And our subject this morning is part number three of the message, The Darkest Day. And Matthew records for us here in the 27th chapter a very strange, remarkable occurrence, really a cosmic anomaly that happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. Now, if you'll look at this text beginning with verse number 45, the scripture says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, this man calleth for Elias. And I just might remark here that that, uh, it appears that they didn't know what he was saying, but most likely they did know because Jesus was quoting from the 22nd Psalm and they knew the scriptures very well. Verse number 48, and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, for the past couple of weeks we've been working our way through this miraculous, impossible day where God displayed his universal authority by shutting out the lights of heaven when Jesus died on the cross. There was darkness and there was blackness in the middle of the day. Right when the sun was at its peak in the sky, when the day is always the brightest, God pulled the shades and shut out the lights in the entire universe. He brought darkness in the middle of the day. And that was just what Gary sang about a minute ago, a miracle that God was able to do. He hangs the stars in space. He, he puts the world or puts the stars in place and hangs the world in space. God is the one who controls all of this. And he was able to do that on the day that Jesus died. Now, just as a a very quick reminder of where we've been in the message, we first talked about this period of darkness. And verse number 45 says, The darkness lasted from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Now, there we're reading Jewish time. That would be from 12 o'clock noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, according to our time. And the length of the darkness was... Uh, was not a natural phenomenon. I mean, seeing the length of the darkness shows us that it couldn't have been a natural phenomenon. It can't be an eclipse. Eclipses never last that long. It can't be a dust cloud. It can't be any kind of a cloud cover at all. But what we see here is the, the supernatural hand of God that overruled the physics of the universe. 
And we need only to be reminded again that God does control the cosmos. All of this is upheld by God's power and God is able to alter it at any time that he chooses to do so. And the fact that, that God orders the universe so that he rarely ever suspends natural laws shows us that God had a very definite intent to make a breathtaking statement here when Jesus died. Well, that brought us then to the purpose of the darkness, and its purpose was to display God's wrath, to display God's judgment against sin. And in the scriptures, darkness is often associated with terrible trouble. The day of the Lord's vengeance, the Word of God says, is a day of darkness, and this is a day in which God brought judgment, and His judgment fell on sin as He poured out His wrath on His own Son. And the darkness was there to cover the anguish that Jesus went through, the suffering that he went through, that God did not want man uh, to be able to see. It was the, the trauma of the transaction between two persons of the Godhead that no person is really capable of understanding. Sin was atoned for during those three hours of darkness, and that's the time that it took for all accounts to be settled for everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, next, we looked at the plea in the darkness. Jesus cried out in Hebrew and then in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's probably the most woeful, chilling cry that's ever been expressed in all the history of the world. Because here we see the separation between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. And in this particular case, Jesus did not address God as his father. He had all the other times. But here he does not address him as the father. And that shows us that the relationship at this point is not about father and son, but this is about judge, the judge and the one who is condemned. And this is a separation that had never happened in all of eternity. Here is the father forsaking his son. It's the father offering his son as a sacrifice and then turning his back on him when he became sin for us, the sin offering. Sin and holiness can never coexist. Sin dispels holiness and holiness repels sin. And so Jesus could not remain in the fellowship of the holy God while sin was upon him. And then we discuss fourthly, The pain of the darkness. In those three hours, the pain that Jesus suffered was taken to a different dimension. At first, his suffering was physical and it was emotional. But at noon, when the darkness came, it sunk down into the spiritual. Here we have spiritual abandonment, something never experienced by any of God's children. None of God's children have ever experienced this. God never abandoned his children at any time. When we fall into sin, if you're a child of God, you know this. When, when you fall into sin, God's told you that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. His promise is always that he's going to sustain us in the very worst of our troubles. In the worst of spiritual times, God is always going to be there for his children. But here at Calvary, the perfect son of God, the one who is never separated from the father, the one in whom the father delights, he was forsaken. Now, you and I, we desperately cling to God's promise that he will stand by us. But Jesus was forsaken. He went through the valley of the shadow of death, and God 
was not with him. No one was with him. Now we could never, we could just never grasp the magnitude of the kind of love that it took for Christ to redeem us from our sins. So this was the strangest and severest type of pain that was ever experienced. And, and those who, who, who never know the saving grace of God will never know what it actually means to lose that saving grace. And those of you that are saved, you do experience it, you have experienced it, you're never going to know what it means to lose it. So Jesus is the only one who's ever been through this. That he was in the favor of God and then no longer is he in the favor of God. Only Jesus had divine favor and then lost it. Now, for those three hours, there was a spiritual black hole on the cross. It was a black hole that sucked in, uh, it was the gravity that sucked in all light and it couldn't escape. And, and most importantly, during that time, it was not caused by anything that Jesus did. There was no sin in him. He didn't cause the darkness and the blackness and he didn't cause the, the, the abandonment of his father. But he was there because of crimes that we have committed. And that's the wonderful thing of our salvation. It's, it's a miracle of love and grace, as it was just sung about, that God was willing to turn his back on his son, and Jesus was still willing to take that sin and that night for us. It was substitution, and the pain that was experienced should have been ours. Now, that's where I want to resume our study today. What was this suffering of the cross? What, was, what, what kind of pain did Jesus go through? What kind of suffering? Well, fifthly, we need to look at the penalty of the darkness. Now, the Bible is very clear about this, that God has a method of punishing sin. I know that you've heard people that are going through tough times in their life, and they'll say things like, oh, uh, I'm going through hell on earth. And they'll talk to you about how hard their lives are. It's hell on earth. People really don't have any idea what hell is like. There is no such thing as hell on earth. Nobody has ever gone through hell on earth except this. Except this time. There never was anything like hell on earth until and since Jesus went to the cross and suffered there. In those three hours that Jesus was on the cross, this is what he did. He suffered hell on earth. God brought the fury of hell against him and those three hours of darkness, and that was beyond any type of physical pain that you could ever imagine. In fact, what Jesus went through was limitless suffering. And there's no one but God who could inflict an infinite suffering on anyone that could be experienced in a finite amount of time. That is impossible. That can't happen. The only way that it is possible is that Jesus could not be just a man, but he also had to be God. He had to be man to have the ability to suffer. God can't suffer. So Jesus became a man in order to suffer. And then he had God's infinite capabilities to take all that suffering that God would put on him. So God put enough suffering on him that it reached the equivalent of the punishment of every believer's sin. The, the punishment that you would have to go through if you were to die and go to hell and have to stay there for eternity, Jesus suffered enough punishment to take care of all of that and to satisfy God. And so in effect, what Jesus experienced in, on, on that cross was worse than hell because there is no person that will ever suffer enough in hell that they can satisfy God. It'll never happen. Now, Christ reached 
the amount of suffering that was necessary, not just for one person, but for a vast number of people. And that's the real story of the cross that's not often told. And people don't tell it. Preachers don't tell it. Because of this one thing that they never like to talk about anymore. And that is hell. They're not going to talk about Jesus going through hell on the cross. Because they don't like to talk about hell anymore. But if you, if you leave out hell, you reduce the cross to nothing more than the same death that the two thieves died that were crucified on either side of Jesus. If you stop short of hell, then you make Jesus nothing but a martyr for a cause. And a martyr that really never could do anything for anybody. He could even help himself on the cross, it appears. So you leave out hell, Jesus becomes a martyr for a cause that helps nobody. And so a preacher that won't preach on hell is a stench in the nostrils of God. And that's because he turns the cross into a cruel bloodbath that really has no purpose. But the Bible teaches hell. God, God teaches hell in Scripture. Jesus taught about hell. And the Bible tells us that hell is a smoke of torment, a fire, an eternal fire, where the smoke of the torment goes up forever and forever. And for people that go there, there is never any relief from it. Oh, the death of Christ is just magnificent and miraculous and stunning because Jesus suffered enough to keep people out of hell. And so for a preacher to walk by the cross without preaching on hell is to ignore the purpose of Jesus being there. It's to completely ignore what he did. The cross means nothing if sin and hell are not real. Oh, but you hear that. Many preachers say, I don't want to preach on hell because people already feel too guilty. Well, my response to that is, nobody could ever feel guilty enough for their sins. To suggest that there's too much guilt is to stomp on the holiness of God. I mean, these are people that have no idea what guilt and sin are. They have no idea how deep the suffering of Jesus was on that cross. I mean, are preachers afraid of hurting people's feelings? Are they afraid of offending people? God's the one who's offended. It took Christ's suffering of hell to remove that offense, our offenses. Now, I, I would certainly think it's worth our time to talk about hell and to explain it as best that we can, give it as vivid a demonstration of it as we can. And I'm not afraid to preach on hell. You already know that. I preach on that a lot. But that's not the purpose today. It's not to preach on hell. I just want you to know that we preach it because we respect what Jesus did on the cross. I respect what he did there. And I'm never going to diminish what Jesus did on the cross because some sorry, self-absorbed person is already too depressed and feels guilty. Now you see, God had only one way that he could satisfy justice. A penalty has to be paid. And that penalty is infinite suffering in the flames of hell. And so we can never expect that Jesus would do anything other than this, that he would go to the cross and he would pay the penalty that God required by taking the same amount of suffering that matches that eternity in hell. Some may not like to hear that. They might not want to think about hell. But every person without Jesus Christ is going to think of hell sooner or later. And you are not the one that decides what's right and you're not the one who knows how to satisfy God. You can't judge God by your opinions. Hell is a real 
place. It's real eternal punishment. God is real. Christ's suffering was real. And no, how, and no matter how badly someone protests against that and said, don't talk about that and refuse to preach it because they want to be popular, hell is real. The penalty of the darkness was real. Hell was poured out on Jesus in a suffering that was so intense that it would melt all matter in the universe and it would destroy Jesus himself if he wasn't God. So he's the only one that could take the pain. And if you ignore that, or you forget that, or you don't believe it, then you're going to suffer it. And the scripture says that you'll never reach the end of it. God is never going to be satisfied when you go to hell that you've suffered enough. No amount of suffering can ever remove the fact that you're guilty. And that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He removed the guilt of sin for those who trust in him. So only Jesus can take the guilt away. And, and a preacher that ignores hell and won't preach on it because people feel too badly already, that, that's simply beyond rational thinking. It's ludicrous for preachers not to preach hell. It leaves men and women subject to the awful tortures of it. So there's a penalty to be paid. Christ paid that on the cross for, for all who believe in him. And his torturous death is the only way that God is satisfied. Do you ever think that you could do that? Do you think that you could do enough good things to satisfy God when he said that the only thing that will satisfy him for sin is infinite punishment? Now you look at the darkness of the cross and you look at this supernatural display, you look at hell and you, you see why Jesus was on that cross. Now before I, before I go on to the next point, I want you to see another remarkable aspect of Christ's death it took life to satisfy God. But let's notice how that Jesus died. In verse number 50, it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Well, what did he say? John chapter 19, verse number 30, tells us, When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That's the loud cry. It is finished. That's a very important word, finished. It doesn't mean that Jesus said, well, it's over. It's, it's, it's finished. I, I can't take it anymore, so I'm done here. No, finished. This word, this Greek word, teleo, it, it's a word that means to discharge a debt. What Jesus said was, I've paid the debt. What a wonderful thing that that is, that what Jesus did was to pay the debt of all the sins of believers. He paid the debt that we owed to God. Now, now we would need a, many, many more sermons to explain all of that and talk more about it, the importance of it. But this is a debt that's paid, which means that God was completely satisfied. That there was nothing left for, for anyone to do. Jesus took care of it all. That's why he said, it's finished. I paid the debt. A few years ago, I, I read a book that was, had a t the title of it was simply one word. The title of it was, done. The author said, it's done. He did it all at the cross. He said, it's done. It's finished. But then, he said, Jesus did all that he could do. And now it's up to you. 
He's done all he can do. Now it's up to you. So what are you going to do? This is what Jesus did. Now what are you going to do? And the premise of the book was Jesus did all they could do at the cross and now there's something left that you need to do. Well, I think we all know what that is. That the, what, What's left to do according to him was a person's repentance and faith. But I'll tell you that if anything is left out for you to do, then it's not done. Jesus said, it is finished. And what he meant by that, it is actually done. He meant that the suffering of the cross was finished and the debt was paid and God is satisfied. And if God is satisfied, there's nothing anybody that's going to do to make God any more satisfied. And so even your repentance and your faith is not going to make God more satisfied. Faith doesn't make God more satisfied. God is the one who actually grants repentance and faith and he grants it to those whose penalty has been paid. Or any other way leaves people responsible to do more than Christ did. Do you understand that? The sacrifice of Christ satisfied God and so that means it wouldn't have satisfied a price for any more than those who do actually believe. Well, that has tremendous implications for the extent of the atonement. If the debt is paid, then nobody for whom the debt is paid could ever be charged with that debt. Which means that there can't be any people in hell whose sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross. No, if God is satisfied, Christ has done everything, so why would they be there? Now, I'm going to leave you to think about that on your own. And you can consider, does God take payment twice? Did he take a payment first from Christ? And then does he say, well, there's also a payment for you to pay. A payment for unbelievers. No, Jesus discharged, discharged the debt completely. He suffered enough. And then in the ninth hour, when there was enough suffering to pay it all, he died. And we see that when Jesus paid that death when it's fully discharged, there was no longer any need for him to be alive. There was no longer a need for him to suffer more on the cross. So Jesus said, it's finished, and then he surrendered his life. So he commanded his spirit to depart. He dismissed his spirit from his body, and he was always in full control of everything that took place on the cross. This is what he said to uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 10. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. And that's what Jesus did. He went to the cross voluntarily. No one caused his death but him. Jesus released his spirit from his body. The expiration of his life came at the exact moment that Jesus permitted it to happen. It was at the ninth hour. And that is the exact time that the sacrifices were being made in Jerusalem of the Passover lambs. Now notice also that Matthew says, he cried with a loud voice. Well, you would think that after the intense suffering that Jesus had been through, all, all these things that happened to him there on the cross, God pouring out hell on him, you would think that Jesus' life would end with a whimper. All of this is unleashed upon him. You would think that Jesus would die with a pitiful gasp. So why do you suppose that Matthew made a point of this to say that Jesus cried with a loud cry? Well, I think that's important because... He's telling us that his life did not slip away as if he could no longer hold on to it. 
I think it shows us that he was in control down to the very last breath. This cry was loud to show that life was still there. That he wasn't fading away. This is his command. And we know that word went back to Pilate that Jesus had died. And Pilate marveled at this, that Jesus had died so soon. And why did he die? Because the payment was through. Jesus gave up his life because he finished it. He paid the debt. God was satisfied. And then when God was satisfied, the mortal life of Jesus Christ expired. It's no longer needed. The debt is paid. And so Jesus is done with his purpose. And that's just too high for us. The virgin birth, the sinless life, the mocking trials, the torturous cross, all of that lasted as long as it needed to last, and then it's over. Jesus died as a martyr? Hardly, folks. A martyr does not command the moment of his death. No person does. Ecclesiastes says that there is no man that has power over his spirit to retain it, neither does he have power over the day of his death. Jesus did, because he wasn't just man. He was God. Now we need to go to the last part of this text so we can finish up. And here is our last observation. Number six is the post-darkness. Jesus surrendered his life and then the darkness lifted. Oh, this was a day of many miracles. The sun and all of heaven's lights were blotted out. They were dark until it was finished. And then when it was finished, God turned the lights back on. But miracles aren't done yet. God wasn't through speaking about the significance of what had happened. Now look at verse number 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now the darkness itself was truly overwhelming. I mean, it was a frightening thing. But aside from that darkness, think for just a moment. If you were one of the priests of Israel, that you're one that's charged with the welfare, of the, the spiritual welfare of the people, and this darkness comes, what happens here in verse number 51 is actually probably more terrifying to the priest than the darkness itself. What we see next is the ripping of the veil. Now at the time of the, of the evening sacrifice, the priests were there at the temple and they were making the, the, going about all their Passover duties. And Jesus was over there on the hill of Golgotha, and that was in sight of the, of the, of the temple mount. And just as Jesus died, this massive veil that was hanging in the temple that separated the outward sanctuary from the inward was ripped from the top to the bottom. At the exact moment, it split apart, and this curtain that divided those two places flooded open, and the priests were able to see into the Holy of Holies, which is a place they'd never seen before. There was only one time that that was ever opened. Only the high priest could open it one day of a year, and he went behind that veil, and as the other priests, none of them saw what was behind there. It was a sacred place. And so a priest would never go up to that veil and just push it aside and peek behind it to see what's there because that was intruding on the holiness of God. And that veil was so thick and it was so tightly woven that teams of horses pulling in opposite directions could not tear it apart. But then at the precise moment when Jesus said, It is finished, there was an unseen hand that tore that veil apart, that huge curtain like tearing a piece of paper towel. And they heard that ripping sound, and they looked up, and the curtain 
was ruined. Now, when I'm talking curtain here, I'm not talking about that curtain. I'm talking about a massive curtain that's 30 feet tall. I'm talking about a huge curtain in the temple, a wide curtain in the temple. As I said, horses, a team of horses pulling in opposite directions couldn't pull this thing apart. And when Jesus said it's finished, that thing split open. Why did that happen? Because Jesus had satisfied God. Now, behind the veil is the place where the high priest would go to take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it there to make atonement for the sins of the people. That is, to satisfy God for the sins of the people. But what had Jesus just done? He just satisfied God. He finished it and so the veil was ripped open to show that the last sacrifice that was ever needed had just been made. Now, there's a very interesting verse in Hebrews that said that that veil represents Christ's flesh. Listen to this passage in Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now this was the scariest thing that a priest could ever imagine. Actually, I don't think that they could imagine it. They would never believe that this huge veil could have been torn in two. But this is what had just happened to Jesus. The flesh of the Son of God had just been torn. The mortal life of Christ had just ended. And so all of the Old Testament sacrifices were immediately abolished. Never did anyone need to go behind that veil again. And it was ripped open to show that Jesus had opened up access to God. He is the great high priest who says to us now, you can come to the Father, you can fellowship with him because of my blood. No priest would ever think that that could happen. They would have never tried to go behind the veil because it was forbidden. But here, Jesus took the prohibition away. And Hebrews says, let us draw near. How do we draw near in full assurance of faith? Oh, this was a major thing. It is so major that many people believe this is the cause of what happened in Acts 6, verse number 7. There it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. They were obedient to the faith because the ripping of that veil was too much to take. There was no way that they could deny that Jesus was not the Messiah Savior. But then there's even more. There's another miracle that takes place. The next one is the rocking of the earth. Now you take that and you put it on top of the black darkness in the middle of the day. On the heels of that cosmic event comes a massive earthquake. Now, you remember when we talked about this darkness that I said, we don't know absolutely for sure whether it was a localized darkness. I think that it wasn't. I think all of heaven's lights were put out. But this earthquake, we know, was not localized. This is, this is something that has been reported in other history besides the Bible, that there was a massive earthquake at this time that shook the entire Roman Empire. Now, with earthquakes come judgment. Why are earthquakes even recorded in the Bible? Because they are times of judgment. Listen to this uh, prophecy about judgment on Jerusalem. Isaiah 29 verse 6. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest. 
and the flame of devouring fire. Here's another interesting one from Amos chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, when he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now you might want to, if you look that up underline, it was two years before the earthquake. Everybody knew about which earthquake this is talking about. What does this mean? The earthquake. This was an earthquake that was so huge that this was remembered for hundreds of years. We find it even in Zechariah's prophecy hundreds of years later. Well, what was that all about? Well, many Jewish writers think it was because, or it happened when Isaiah saw that vision of God in his glory in Isaiah chapter 6. There are some who say that it happened when King Uzziah was stricken with leprosy when he intruded into the priest's office. One thing that we know for sure, according to Scripture, it was predicted two years before it actually happened, and that tells us this was the judgment of God because of some evil that took place in Israel. Oh, you can go on reading. You can find plenty of other earthquakes. Earthquakes predict or are the results of judgment. Revelation records many earthquakes, and those are far beyond what you've just heard about an earthquake in Nepal or one in Chile or Indonesia, Haiti, or wherever it might be. These are earthquakes that happen in the tribulation that affect the entire planet. So this one happened when the darkness lifted and when Jesus said, it finished, it is finished. And it foreshadows the day when God is going to shake the entire world and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll And the earth's going to be made new again. But God wasn't through. There's still something else. Verse number 52. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. And went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So next we see raising the dead. This also happened when Jesus died. Now, pay close attention to what this says. The graves were open and the body of saints arose. And you'll look carefully at that and you'll see that the resurrection of those bodies did not occur until after Jesus arose. And that was three days later. The earthquake opened up the graves, but the bodies did not come out until Jesus was raised. And you know why? It's because the scripture says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, what we're looking at here is not just a past event, but this is a prediction of the future. We're looking at a forward look. This is a forward-looking picture. Because Jesus arose, there are going to be more fruits to follow. He's the first fruit. There are more fruits to follow. And those fruits that follow are you and me, who are believers in Jesus Christ. He is also going to raise us. So these bodies were raised to give hope of the promise of a future resurrection, a resurrection uh, of Christ that affects all believers. And it says, saints arose. Nobody else here. These are just saints. And I don't mean somebody that Roman Catholics said some hocus pocus over and made them saints. I got news for you, those are ain'ts, not saints. Uh, I mean, there is no boys club of popes and cardinals that can make a saint. No, these are believers just like you and me. But the Bible doesn't say who they were. It doesn't say how long that they'd been dead. Some people say, well, they were Old Testament saints. They've been dead a very long time. I don't really think so. Uh, My opinion may not count, but I, I, I think the way it's worded that these were people that had been dead only a short time. 
And those graves were open. They came out. They went into the city. And people recognized them. Family and friends knew who they were. Now, did you know that the Bible never says that Jesus ever appeared to anyone who was not a believer in him? And it never says that anybody that rose out of a grave, these graves, ever appeared to somebody who was not a believer in Jesus Christ. So why did they appear? Well, they went and they showed those who are believers that they could expect that someday, even if they were to lose their lives for Christ, that God was going to raise them from the dead. Well, after reading this text, there's almost always people who ask, what happened to these people? Did they die again? Well, for sure, I don't think they were zombies. They were not the living dead. They were the living living. Jesus, God made them alive. But are we talking about a Lazarus-type resurrection here? Lazarus rose from the dead. Jesus called him out of the grave. But then Lazarus died. Later on, he died. What about these people? Did they die? What happened to them? The Bible doesn't say doesn't say what happened to them. And so we, well, some people say, well, okay, let's just leave it there. The scripture doesn't say what's happened to them, so let's leave it there. Leave it there. But most of us aren't satisfied to do that. It's like when I was teaching on the Ark of the Covenant. And I said, nobody knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible does not say what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as I said that, somebody raised their hand and said, so what happened to it? <laughs> well, I don't have any idea what happened to it. We're just never satisfied. But if it, if it makes you happy for me to give you a totally uninformed opinion and one that you can't count on and it carries absolutely no weight between men, women, cats, and dogs, then I'm going to give you one. So as long as you understand that first. It's just an opinion. I think that after a few days, they went to heaven. But my theory is not without its problems. Because in order for them to go to heaven, God would have to glorify their bodies. You can't go to heaven with a corrupt body. And so even though they rose from the grave, if they weren't in glorified, they had to have their bodies glorified in order to go to heaven. I don't know if God did that. He may have done that. And this is why you don't answer questions that you don't know the answer to. You're going to just leave yourself with more problems. So I don't know what happened to him. And I'm sure somebody's going to ask me what happened to him. Well, one, la one last point that I need to make and we'll be done. And that is realizing the truth. Some of these people realized the truth. Verse number 54. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, we notice how that Matthew begins this section of the post-darkness. He said, behold. Now, we've talked about that word. Uh, it means Pay very close attention now. Something very unusual is about to happen. So we see, behold, the veil was ripped, and behold, the earth was rocked, behold, the dead were raised. And then we could add to that as well, behold, people started to realize the truth. Well, who were these? It's actually a sad commentary, but it's also highly prophetic. A few weeks ago, I told you that there were no Jewish soldiers that were in the Roman army. Jews were never conscripted into the Roman army and that's because they would be so hated by their people and so ashamed of what they would do that they would never be in the Roman army. So we're not talking here about people that are Jewish. These are Roman soldiers who said truly this was the Son of God. No Jews here. 
Now, some of them, I think, were probably in verse number 36. Ones that stripped him naked, ones that gambled over his clothing, ones that nailed him to the cross and then sat down and watched him there as he suffered. These were pagans that never for a moment believed anything about him. But then they saw the darkness, and they felt the earthquakes, and they heard Jesus say, Okay, I'm done. I'm finished. And then he was gone. He died. Just like that. He said, it's finished, and he's gone. And right at that very moment, there are these soldiers that, thinking, that are thinking, Man, what have we done This truly was the Son of God. Not words from a Jewish crowd. These are heathen Gentiles. And how prophetic is this? I mean, how many Jews in the 2,000 years since have said, truly, Jesus is the Son of God? That hardly ever happens. There were a few thousand after his death in Jerusalem that believed, but then after that short period of time, it was almost the hardest thing there is to do to get Jews to believe the gospel of Christ. Paul became exasperated with that. He would always go to the Jews first, but then when they wouldn't believe, he said, I I, I can't do any more with you. You won't believe, so we're going to turn to the Gentiles. And now Gentiles, people just like you and me, we're most of the makeup of God's church today. Well, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two, and what that did was shut down the Jewish system. Today, Judaism has morphed from what it was. There are no sacrifices. There is no temple. There is no sense among the Jews what it means to be saved from God's wrath. And why is that? Because the cross is meaningless to them. And that's not an anti-Semitic statement. That's just the truth. Satan has blinded their eyes. And this is a prophetic statement. And we see it today that there are exceedingly far more non-Jews that believe the gospel of Christ than Christ's own people. So here are three hours of darkness, three hours of suffering the intensity of hell, and then it's done. The darkness lifted, and God had been atoned for sin. What does that mean to us? It means that you and I don't have to suffer hell. If if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will not have to suffer hell because God was satisfied with what Jesus did. And, and, And later we're going to come on to God's mark of approval, the stamp of approval on what Jesus did. I think you all know what it was. It was his resurrection from the dead. That was proof that God said he did it all. So folks, that's the cross. We spent all this time talking about Jesus' cross. This is why we preach a suffering Savior. Sins are atoned, and because of that, heaven is gained. Listen to these, the words of a, as I close here, the words of a, of a beautiful song that say, Calvary's love can heal the spirit life has crushed and cast aside and redeemed till heaven's promise fills with joy once empty eyes. So desire to tell his story of a love that loved enough to die, burns away all other passions, and fed by Calvary's love becomes a fire. Calvary's love has never faltered. All its wonders still remain. Souls still take eternal passage. Sins atoned and heaven gained. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we spent together today. We thank you for the story of the cross Spending these past few weeks talking about it has been a very difficult thing to do. The pain and the suffering that Jesus went through, 
We, we can't imagine what it was like. There's, there's no way that we can fathom the depths of those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The only thing that you've revealed to us, the part that we can know, is that Jesus was on the cross because of sin. And you turned your back on him because he was suffering for our sins, for everybody who would believe in him. Lord, we just thank you. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We could never express enough gratitude for it. Lord, I pray that you would speak to someone's heart today. Help them to see how important that the cross is, that without it, they die and they go to hell. Lord, I pray you turn someone's heart to you today. Hell does not need to be any person's destiny, not any person who believes in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those of you that come to Brian Baptist Church and you've been here for quite some time, maybe you don't realize or think about how that the cross is most often preached. And most of the time it's preached as a sentimental thing. It's to get people to think, oh, what a terrible thing that happened to Jesus. And then think, you know, he, he, he lived such a good life and he died a terrible death. And so what we need to do is just live like Jesus, be the kind of people that Jesus was. And they never talk about this issue of why he was actually there, which is their sins. Because without what Jesus did on the cross, people are going to die and go to hell. Everybody dies and go to hell without believing what Jesus did on the cross. And why that message never gets across, the hell and the sin that's involved with the cross, is a strange, strange mystery. It's, well, the mystery of it is how the devil has just taken that and made Jesus just a, the death of the cross, just a sentimental thing that people think about. It's not just a sentimental thing. He was there because of sin, because of hell, and he took that pain and suffering to satisfy God. We have to get that story out. Let's sing another verse of our song. If God's spoken to your heart in some way, and maybe you don't know, you haven't trusted in Christ, I encourage you to do that now. It's the only way to escape the fires of hell. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.